You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of international economics at the University of Denver. Holding a PhD in economics from the University of Massachusetts, he teaches courses on international trade, the normative foundations of global economic policy, great books in political economy, and professional ethics in international affairs. His latest book is The Tragic Science, How Economists Cause Harm, Even as They Aspire to Do Good. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. George DiMartino. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for this opportunity. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Yeah, sure. I am, as you said, I earned my PhD in economics back in in the 1990s. Um, and since then, I've been, I began, well, either as a student and since, I've been interested in the question of the ethical side of what we do as economists. You know, we have enormous influence in the world. I don't think people recognize it so much because it's not direct influence, as in when you go to see your doctor, you see the physician's influence in your life. We don't see that with what economists do, but nevertheless, what economists do have enormous impact. So I started to worry as a very young economist about the ethical side. Where are, uh, where are we as a profession in terms of recognizing our ethical responsibilities? And over time, over the last 25 years, my research agenda has really probed different aspects of the connections between ethics and economics, more recently focusing on the practice of economists, what we do as economists, um, and are we fulfilling our obligations to society? And that's what, that's what this book is about that we're discussing today. Okay, perfect. So your latest book is titled The Tragic Science, How Economists Cause Harm Even As They Aspire to Do Good. So I wanted to start by getting an understanding of the, the concept of harm in this context. So when we think of harm in, say, for example, a medical context, like you mentioned, it's relatively straightforward to understand how a physician could cause harm to a patient. But mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, it's much harder to conceptualize that in, in the field of economics. So, Dr. DiMartino, could you tell us a bit about what harm looks like in economics and where the potential for such harm arises? Oh, I'm, I'm really glad you started us off with this question. Um, economists pronounce on economic policy, on economic institutions. Economists are everywhere in the economy and in politics. Um, making recommendations and advising about what our institutions and our policies should look like. It's an unfortunate fact that most policies in complex societies like our own, most policies have differential impact on different groups of people. Now, economists have known this for over 100 years, and we'll talk about that. But just to clarify, if you take a policy that economists love, free trade, Trade liberalization. Economists always want more trade liberalization. They would sell their <laughs> their eldest child for more trade liberalization. Economists have known uh, for 200 years that, uh, the, well, uh, let's say 100 years to be more precise, um, that trade liberalization, while it may be great for society as a whole in the sense that it generates economic growth, that's contestable, but imagine that that's correct. 
Even if it does that, it, there are nevertheless groups in society who will suffer its effects. People get thrown out of work. People lose incomes. Regions of the, of the country will lose their economic footing. If you happen to work in an industry that does not have a comparative advantage relative to other countries, you are going to suffer and you may suffer uh, substantially. So what does economic harm look like? It, it, in the first instance, it, it, it refers to the economic costs of economic policy for those who are harmed by the policy. But the next point is critical. The next point is critical, and it's this. When a community is devastated by economic harms, that very quickly cascades, as I talk about in the book, into all other kinds of harms, physical harms, cultural harms, social harms, autonomy harms, political harms, people suffer a whole cascading effect of, or I should say, a whole cascading series of harms that we don't necessarily or typically identify as economic, but which are in fact brought about by um, economic policy changes, even economic policy changes that economists advocate. And so for instance, and I'll finish with this point, um, trade liberalization causes localized unemployment. We've known this for a hundred years, okay? The problem here is that economists then to think, tend to think that the harm from losing your job, becoming unemployed, is just that you've lost your wage. But in fact, recent research has shown that no, people suffer in many, many other ways, much more deeply than just the loss of income. When a community is hit by rising unemployment, they suffer rising rates of homicide, domestic abuse, suicide, drug abuse, um, the loss of political efficacy, social isolation. The, the, the problem is that these problems just cascade. And so what we find are devastated communities populated by many devastated individuals. And these harms are far more grave than just the loss of a little bit of income. Yeah. So, I mean, next I wanted to ask you about an, an interesting pretext you mentioned in the books, um, similar to what you just talked about. Um, you write that, quote, Critics of economic, the economics profession have argued rightly that over the past century, the profession has tended to oversimplify and even trivialize harm. It has been oversimplified by means of severe reductionism, in which all harms, no matter their nature, depth, duration, or, mean, or causes, are reduced to the, the loss of welfare, a concept that we will investigate throughout this book. It has, been, it has trivialized harm by treating all harms as the, if they were entirely reparable through compensation. So thinking about this this problem in the in the Kelder Hicks efficient sense, if the overall increase in society, social welfare um, is positive under a particular policy, then we should at least theoretically be able to compensate for harm, and, and no one is worse off. Um, however, you raise an interesting point here that this this potential compensation requires compensability. So can you tell us a bit about the examples of, of the type of harm that, that can't be compensated, um, that, that are non-compensable, and how economists can go about identifying and, and modifying their policy approach to account for that? Sure. Now, this is, a, this is perhaps one of the central issues of the book. Economists, uh, at least since the 1930s, have operated with this approach to policy in which it is thought that if a policy generates in the aggregate gains, but at the same time harms some, if there are at the same time victims, provided the gains to the winners are greater than the losses to the losers, it is thought that the winners could potentially fully compensate the losers for their losses and still enjoy net benefit. On that basis, we endorse the policy. This is the root of what's called the Caldor-Hicks 
sometimes called the Caldor-Hicks compensation test or the potential Pareto test, if the gains to the winners are greater than the losses to the losers. Here's the problem. The Caldor-Hicks, and by the way, that then becomes the foundation for cost-benefit analysis, which is how many economists spend their lives calculating the costs and benefits of policies, proposed policies, to see if they meet the Caldor-Hicks criteria with the, gain, the net gains, with there being net gains. Here's the problem. What if some of the harms are not compensable? If some of the harms are not compensable, if you lose your child because you can no longer afford uh, access to the pharmaceuticals that that child needs to stay alive, and your child is now deceased, what if th what if that kind of what if there are those kinds of harms from economic policy? They are not compensable. There's no amount of money that you would trade for your child. But but the approach of Caldor Hicks presumes that there's always some amount of money, some alternative goods that you can be provided to make up for the goods you've lost. That works great when you're talking about the loss of an apple. Sure, I'll accept two pairs in compensation for the loss of the one apple, no problem. But when we're talking about fundamental harms, fundamental harms like the loss of lives and livelihood, mental illness, suicide, and the kinds of harms I just mentioned a moment ago when we talked about unemployment, those kinds of harms are not compensable. There's no amount of money that you would be willing to trade your child for so that you would say, well, I'm just as well off with the money, but without the child as I was before when I had the child and didn't have the money. Now, here's the problem, Adi. If we recognize, if we accept this argument, and it's an obvious point, if we accept this argument that economic policy brings about non-reparable harm, non-compensable harm, then the moral geometry that economists have been using for 100 years to judge policy, by moral geometry, I refer to Caldor Hicks and cost-benefit analysis, social welfare functions, none of those tests work. They all become illegitimate because they all require a notion that compensation can be paid for any harm and people can always be made whole no matter what they have suffered as a consequence of economic policy. Well, um, yeah, that's that's interesting. But um, I, I wanted to perhaps consider the the, the that 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 point and the, the opportunity cost sense. So you talked about how, um, for example, uh, an example of a non compensable harm would be yeah, the loss of a child. Um, you you previously mentioned how um, you know trade liberalization might you know although it might um, cause. Um, benefit overall in the in the in the aggregate, um, it might cause um, localized um, unemployment. S some communities, a lot of people might lose their jobs, and then that community sort of falls apart. And there's a lot of issues there. But I mean, what if we think about this in in the opportunity cost sense um, of saying, okay, well, the effects of not doing trade liberalization is that maybe we might have this one area um, where it does have this negative impact, and this one community falls apart. But all the jobs that it does bring, um, because we're now specializing in our in our comparative advantage, makes these five towns better off. Um, and so all the issues in this community, uh, all, all the issues in these five communities are now resolved. Um, or the same same example with the, the the lust of the child because of the increase in um, societal welfare um, you know 10 
perhaps um, 10 families can now afford um, health insurance and, and we, we've saved 10 kids um, and perhaps this one one child dies. So if you're thinking about it as, as an economist, perhaps in Washington, you're thinking, well, maybe 10 people are going to lose their, their health insurance and that might put their kids at, at risk or that might cause non-compensable harms. But a thousand people are going to make the, are, are going to gain, um, you know, may have lost their children if we didn't do this. Um, you get what I mean? Like, how, how do we go about thinking about it in, in the opportunity cost sense, even for things that are non-compensable, you know, non-monetary? Yeah, I, I think you've just done a really nice job of summarizing the way economists tend to think about this issue. If we're harming these five, but we're helping those 10 um, then, but with the policy, then think about if we don't enact the policy, aren't we harming the 10 to benefit those five? Um, and it's that kind of argument that leads economists to, in my view, become extraordinarily cavalier about the harms they cause, because they can always point to or, or purport to show that the gains to, are greater than the losses. And therefore, had we not pursued the policy that they advocate, um, the losses would have been greater than the harms. Now, there's a, there are several different issues here. And in the, given the amount of time we have, I'm just going to pick one uh, to discuss. In the philosophical literature, um, especially in the liberal tradition. So th this is a tradition that you would, you know, liberal philosophers, this is a tradition that you think economists would hew towards given the uh, strength of liberalism in the economics profession, but liberalism in, in the sense of economic freedoms. In the liberal philosophical tradition, not harming is given priority over benefiting. You have to draw a distinction between not benefiting and harming. That is to say, if uh, we can uh, improve the lives of, the, let's say, a tax cut for the wealthy that's going to reduce social welfare expenditures for the poor, if that kind of a policy passes Calder-Hicks test, if the gains to the rich are greater than the losses to the poor, then the economist's view is this. If we don't pass the policy, we are actually harming the rich who would otherwise get these benefits. So by not benefiting them when we can, we are actually, in fact, harming them. Now, in the philosophical literature, that argument doesn't fly. Philosophers have argued for years, for centuries, that harm prevention ought to take priority in the sense that not that you should never harm one group to benefit another, but that there should always be stronger compelling reasons to harm one group than to benefit uh, benefit another group. And that when we start to make these kinds of judgments about when is it okay to harm some for the benefit of others, we have to take account of far more than just the fact that the gains to the winners are greater than the losses to the losers. We have to ask a whole series of questions that, are, that the economic moral geometry doesn't ask. For example, what is the condition of those who are about to be harmed? What is the condition of those who are about to be helped? Is it the case that those who are going to suffer are already worse off? Is it the case that those who are going to benefit are already best off? We have to bring in a whole set of complicating factors that our traditional approaches with cost-benefit analysis and Calder-Hicks do not consider. So to end this reply, Adi, I'd say that the question as you framed it was perfectly put, but it casts the issue in far too simplistic terms because there are many other questions we have to ask whenever we're thinking about harming some for the benefit of others, questions that the economics profession has been very reluctant to ask. Yeah, um, and so that brings me perfectly to the next question, which is um, how, how changing this approach in the way that you mentioned um, in, in thinking about harm um, would affect the efficacy of economics as a profession. 
Um, so you write that, quote, based on the many presentations and countless discussions I've had with economists on these issues, I've come to appreciate a deep professional anxiety, serious engagement with the full complexity of harm it, it is thought would stymie economics in their pursuit of social betterment. Unless we subscribe to a simple, tractable, good enough account of harm, the argument goes we will descend into pointless debate over philosophical matters that will prevent readily available concrete interventions to promote social betterment. So whilst I would agree with you that too simple a view of harm like you discussed does have repercussions, I wanted to ask you about real-world limitations. Um, ultimately, all public policy is still going to come with certain people that suffer harm directly or indirectly that we either can't compensate or that it is logically impossible to figure out each person that's harmed, to what extent, and how they can be compensated, um, their, their exact situation, you know, all, all those sorts of logistical issues. Um, so don't we have to draw that line at some point and, and say, well, this is good enough? And if so, how do we know when we've reached that point? Oh, good. Yeah. I don't know the answer to your last question, but it is a critically important question. It may even be the critically important question. And this relates to a broader problem, then I'll circle back to your, to try to give you a more compelling answer. In other professions that cause harm, and by the way, most other professions also risk causing harm regularly. Medicine, for example, causes a lot of doctors, physicians, medical institutions cause a lot of harm as they also promote a social betterment. In these other professions, and the same is true of engineering and, uh, and the law and journalism and social work and on and on and on. In many of these professions, there is by now a well-established tradition called professional ethics, where people in the profession and others think through and debate and kind of reason over um, what are the ethical entailments for a profession that is trying to promote public good, but at the same time causes harm. And they all face exactly the same question, problem, dilemma that you just raised. When I've talked to economists, the economists say, and you're quite right, if we have to answer all these questions before we can do any economics, we'll never get to do any economics and society will suffer. And I am sympathetic to that argument. But the mistaken reasoning here is the idea that you have to somehow answer all these questions before you can get on with the business of promoting social betterment. That's not true at all. In medicine, the, the, the field of medical ethics, med medical ethicists and medical practitioners fight all the time over, they debate all the time the question, uh, what does it mean to harm? What are the forms of harm? Which harms are legitimate legitimate to impose on patients for their welfare? Uh, or in research, which risks are okay to impose on willing subjects for the betterment of society as a whole? The point is this, Adi. The fact that these questions are still debated in law, medicine, engineering, and that there's no closure on these issues, there's no hard and fast answer, doesn't prevent physicians from treating patients, lawyers from representing their clients, engineers from building bridges. It's understood that you you work with that you work with the best thinking you have at the moment, but you continue to press and push to get greater clarity on the question of which kinds of harms, what definitions of harm are good enough that we can go forward and continue to do good work. I think that economics can replicate that. We don't have to be stymied by uh, the fact that we're not exactly sure what the right answer is to these questions before we can do our economics. We should, we have a moral obligation, in fact, to pursue these questions just as carefully as do medical ethicists. You know, in medicine, there's a whole tradition called iatrogenic harm. 
It's a study of physician-induced harm. In economics, we don't even have a word to describe economist-induced harm, which is why in the book I propose one, econogenic harm. We don't even have a term that describes the problem. We therefore clearly don't have literature debates where we can talk about these things. And it's in the context of those conversations, Adi, that I think the answer to, to your question has got to be Got, got to be discovered. It's not me dictating to the profession, this definition of harm is good enough, not yours. The point is that this should be a collective endeavor of people who are, you know, economists by and large are trying to make the world a better place. They could have this conversation. Um, and that's where these answers should be discovered in this new field of professional economic ethics. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and so I wanted to ask next about how we would sort of go about doing that. Um, so you've discussed in the past um, talking about a, a professional um, ethical code of conduct in the field of economics that to, to address ethical quandaries that may arise, um, like you just mentioned. Um, so an example you mentioned in an interview a, a while back explored the idea um, of if and when it's not only ethically permissible, but preferable to lie or even manipulate data. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about your idea of how we could go about um, developing a comprehensive professional code of conduct in economics. Um, for example, you know, in the law in, in the law profession, you might look to the ABA that certifies um, lawyers and, and allows them to practice. Um, I, I mean, per, perhaps would there be a, an a equivalent in the economics profession? Um, so, what what how would we go about doing that? What what might it look like or address? And could you actually see the probability of this occurring in the near future? Well, the few things to be said about this. First, I have not spent the last 10 years, I've been working on this issues. I published the book, um, The Economist's Oath, not Code, The Economist's Oath, 2011 or 2012. And I've been working on these issues ever since. And I have not been arguing for the adoption of a code. And in fact, I've often found myself in debates arguing against the adoption of a code. Why? Many professions have codes and nobody in the profession pays attention to them. For example, political science, there's a code. I've never met a political scientist who knows of the code. It's, it's just widely ignored. What I've been arguing for isn't a code, but a new tradition of inquiry. You know, journals, articles, conferences, debates, um, training students in these ethical questions, not with an eye toward coming up with a hard and fast code, but in terms of nurture, but with the goal of nurturing ethical awareness around the, these, uh, these issues. So for example, lying in, lying in economics. I do not argue that we should have a code on the question of lying. I argue that I've been in this profession for 35 years, maybe. I've never once had a conversation or been a part of a conversation or been at a conference where there was a conversation on the question of deception by economists. And yet I would argue that economists deceive all the time. I would argue that our profession, and this is maybe the paper you're referring to that I've just written recently, I would argue that economists take a rather uh, relaxed view toward deception, provided it's for, it's seen to be for the public good. So, for example, if you're the Fed Reserve chair um, and the world is falling apart in 2008, you're Ben Bernanke. Um, Paul, ben Bernanke, I will assert, lied to, the, to Congress and to the public about how dangerous the circumstances were. Now, why did he do that? It wasn't to ennoble himself. It wasn't, to, it wasn't for his own benefit, I should say. It was in order to calm financial markets with the hope of averting even a deeper crisis. This is called pro-social lying. 
And my guess is that most economists would agree with me, A, he lied, and B, he was right to do so, because he was doing it for the purposes of protecting society, and after all, isn't that his job? The problem is, where are the limits to lying in our profession? That's the conversation we need to have. Where are the limits? Can I lie? I'm not the Federal Reserve Chair when I teach my students. Um, what, what, when is deception okay? When is it not okay? And most importantly, what is the downside of economists deceiving? What's the downside that we need to take account of before we get too relaxed about the fact that economists deceive uh, the public? I would argue that that's a conversation we absolutely need to have. In the absence of it, we are, and by the way, I'm not the only economist who makes these claims. If you read the first few pages of Danny Roderick's recent book, uh, Straight Talk on Trade, he makes this allegation in 15 different ways in the first three or four pages of his book that economists deceive. I would argue that this is extraordinarily damaging to the profession, and moreover, and more importantly, it's extraordinarily damaging to the people we purport to serve, to the lay people we purport to serve. Where's the conversation about this? That's what we need in the field of professional economic ethics. Okay. Um, and do you think that, say, for example, um, just, just personal judgment on the part of economists isn't, isn't sufficient to address this? Like, for example, you mentioned the Federal Reserve Chair um, lying to preserve the, you know, lying for the, the benefit of the public. Um, do you think that, um, you know, in the absence of what you mentioned, um, personal, personal good judgment um, and, and common sense, so to speak, is insufficient? Okay. It's deeply insufficient. In my last book, the, the, uh, that I, the singly authored book, that is to say, The Economist's Oath, I interviewed many dozens of economists in academia, but especially economists out there in the world doing applied economics. And this is one of the questions I asked them. Do you trust other economists? The answer universally was no. And what was so fascinating to me is that people pointed to uh, their own part of the profession to point to the real problems. So, for example, an economic consultant, he had been, by the way, on the Council of uh, Economic Advisors, so an important economist, who was also an economic consultant, said, never trust an economic consultant. Several economists said, never trust development economists. A very important uh, think tank economist in Washington, D.C., told me, never trust a think tank economist. We have a profession. And I don't know of another profession where this is the case, where nobody trusts anybody, <laughs> where people, we don't trust each other. And with good reason, we don't trust each other because there has been no constraint. There has been so little constraint on our behavior um, when it comes to shading the truth, to put it more politely, in order to achieve our objectives. Okay, so finally, I wanted to finish off um, by asking if there was anything that you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is the this was the most hopeful part of the book. Chapter 11 of the book talks about this new approach that's emerging in economics and especially in other fields, especially those dealing with climate change that are exploring alternative ways of pursuing policy that fundamentally changes the ethos driving the role of the economist. So, for example, uh, the, the, the tradition is called decision making under deep uncertainty. And in this approach, the economist presumes that we cannot know the future. This is a key theme in my book. Economists think they know more than they do. We cannot know the future. There's going to be harm. And so we had better work with the stakeholders who risk 
being harmed as we go about theorizing what kinds of policies to pursue. It brings in as partners those who represent vulnerable groups to make sure that they are involved in the policymaking process. So rather than having a harmful policy imposed on them, they participate in deciding which risks to take in pursuit of which social objectives. It is extraordinary. I write about it with tremendous um, excitement in the book. Um, and I happen to think it's the future of responsible policy engagement for our profession. All right. Um, well, those are all the questions I, I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. DiMartino. I want to thank you for this opportunity. Perfect. Um, Dr. George DiMartino's latest book, The Tragic Science, How Economists Cause Harm Even As They Aspire to Do Good, is available from the UChicago Press and all major booksellers. Um, I, I strongly recommend you go check that out if you've, if you've enjoyed this talk. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.